3: Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Ordinarily, the show is about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. We're not doing a live show this weekend because of football conflicts. So we won't be taking any questions over the air. But if you do want to call Connors and Sullivan to schedule an appointment to talk about estate planning and elder law, please feel free at 718-238-6500, 718 718- Two three eight sixty five hundred. 238 6500 We have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. We do not charge for the first consultation. The initial consultation is free. About estate planning and elder law. So if you want to ask questions about that, how to leave my house to my kids, the best way to leave the house to my kids, how do I save on taxes, how do I save on nursing home bills, give us a call at Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500. So tonight we're going to be talking about history and we're, we're talking about two different wars. First we're going to get Harold... Giles Unger, who is a Revolutionary War historian. He's written a lot of other books. But he's going to be talking about one character I think a lot of people in the audience don't know anything about, Dr. Benjamin Rush. Dr. Rush was one of those Revolutionary War heroes who's kind of forgotten over time. But he has done a lot of things in his career, uh, including taking care of the wounded on the battlefield. Something, you know, previous to the, the Revolutionary War and Dr. Rush, the wounded were left on the battlefield to die almost he started to start putting in place procedures to help the wounded on the battlefield, among uh, numerous other accomplishments, which we'll hear in a few minutes. Our second interview tonight is Peter Carmichael, who's Director of Civil War Studies at Gettysburg College, and he's going to be talking about the common man in the Civil War. You know, I think we lose, we tend to focus, even on this show, we tend to focus a lot on generals and, you know, colonels at, at appropriate times and... You know, who led this battle and what happened at that battle and so forth. But I think the common man has been forgotten. And Peter Carmichael has written a book to try to bring that into focus. The common soldier. Some of the stories he talks about, it really brings to life the suffering that these men were going through. You know, it wasn't just, you know, bonnie blue flag and so forth and and so on. It wasn't all just glory and heroics. It was a tough war, and it was tough for these guys to survive the war. And that's going to be our conversation with Peter Carmichael the common man in the Civil War. And he's going to be speaking at the Civil War Roundtable on November 12th.
1: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you, so
3: come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Tuesday, November 27th at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m., then in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn at Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S on Wednesday, November 28th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m., and finally Finally at The Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens, on Friday, November 30th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
3: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't
4: take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with.
1: You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. But if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
0: We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home.
5: Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it.
2: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
1: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from
3: the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org
1: today. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A few times
3: we've had our next guest, Harlow Giles Ungert, talking about founding fathers, and he's, he's written how many books about founding fathers? 14, 15? Uh, almost 20. Almost 20? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So. The question I'm going to start with, one, who was Dr. Benjamin Rush, and why did you decide to write about him?
4: Well, Dr. Benjamin Rush was the only uh, physician to sign the Declaration of Independence. And uh, he was really the uh, founding father of American medicine, as we know it today. He was the founding father of our social structure, today's social structure. Uh, Everybody knows that George Washington was the founding father of our military and political structure and that Alexander Hamilton was the founding father of our financial structure, our economic structure. But Dr. Benjamin Rush, whom fewer people seem to know about, uh, was the founding father of our social structure. He was the first champion of of women's rights, the first champion of abolition, of universal free education, of public sanitation. Uh, None of those towns and cities cleaned their streets until Dr. Rush uh, fought for that practice, and one in Philadelphia. Uh, He badgered the uh, Pennsylvania State Legislature to build public schools, to reform state prisons, to end capital punishment for non-capital crimes. They used to hang teenagers for stealing. As a field surgeon in the American Revolution, he was a volunteer, of course. He he went up to uh, join Washington as they crossed the Delaware at Trenton and uh, he was the first physician to start treating the wounded on the battlefields. Unless you could crawl off uh, uh, or limp off somehow, armies tradition- traditionally all over the world let wounded soldiers die on the battlefield. Uh, it was a horrible practice, and wa- uh, Benjamin Rush talked Washington into ending it and starting what is- became the Army Medical Corps. Uh, So he was a pioneer in so many areas of today's social life. Uh, He was the first doctor to urge temperance in the use of alcohol and to condemn tobacco use. (laughs) Uh, He didn't succeed in that one for several centuries, but he finally did. And, of course, he was the father of American psychiatry. He uh, started working at hospitals and found the basements filled with Uh, the mentally ill chained to the prison walls and whipped by sadistic guards. Uh, He forced the Philadelphia Hospital to release the mentally ill and put them into hospital rooms where he could treat them with medicines and what he called talk therapy, which we now call psychotherapy. He was a century ahead of Freud, (laughs) Uh, yet Freud gets all the credit. Uh, The American Psychiatric Association gives uh, Dr. Rush the due credit. Uh, They have his image on the official seal of the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, So he was a a pioneer in so many social areas uh, that we now take uh, what he discovered for granted. People in Chicago. I was just going to say that uh, uh, although a lot of Americans don't know his name. People in Chicago know his name because the, uh, of the world-renowned uh, Rush uh, University uh, medical school and nursing school and a uh, huge, huge uh, uh, educational complex there.
3: In your research, what, what in his background led him to be so far advanced in so many fields?
4: He was a, a, a farmer's son. I grew up on a small farm outside of of Philadelphia, and I suppose it was just the, uh, the, the, they were very sweet parents who loved their children dearly, and uh, I suppose he just grew up in a a very advanced social family, but uh, he went to Princeton. Uh, It was then called the uh, College of New Jersey, but he went to uh, what is now Princeton University for his undergraduate work, and then went to the world's finest medical school uh, in uh, Edinburgh, University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And came, uh, after he finished those studies, he went to study postgraduate work in London and came under the influence of Benjamin Franklin. And I think it was his, uh, the influence of Benjamin Franklin that probably uh, helped him uh, develop a great deal of sympathy for, Ordinary people.
3: How does he get involved in politics at the beginning of the revolution?
4: Well, at the beginning, he came back to uh, America, of course, and in Philadelphia, uh, everyone was uh, chafing under uh, taxation. Uh, they had never been taxed before. As I said, his father was a farmer, and farmers weren't taxed. They 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 cleared the land, uh, they planted the fields. And they sold what they, they took enough to eat for themselves, but then they sold uh, what they had uh, grown with their own hard work. And suddenly these uh, British agents come over and wanted to want, wanted tax what they had planted, and they resented it tremendously. Why should uh, they have to pay, uh, give away part of what they had earned to the British government? They, they called it con, 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 conf, confiscation and rush sympathized with them uh, as obviously did uh, all the other founding fathers and he became a a patriot uh, dedicated to uh, fighting for uh, liberty and independence
3: what got him to the uh, to the signing of the declaration of independence how had he uh...
4: well he was in philadelphia at the time uh, and when the first continental congress met in philadelphia bringing together Uh, Patriots from all the other states. Uh, He got to know them uh, individually. Philadelphia was, although it was the largest uh, town in America, it was still a relatively small uh, town. You could walk across it uh, in a couple of hours. It was only about two miles in diameter. And as these uh, other patriots, these other eventually signers of the Declaration of Independence, came into town for the first Continental Congress, uh, he got to know them. He was the leading doctor in town. Uh, he treated uh, uh, John Adams, and uh, as a matter of fact, John and Sam Adams stayed at his house. Uh, there, were, there were no hotels in those days. There were taverns, which were pretty uncomfortable, or private homes. And he invited a number of the signers, including the two Adams, uh, John and Sam Adams' uh, cousins, uh, to stay at his house. And he got to know them during the First Continental Congress. When they came back the following year for the second Continental Congress, that was the one in which the members signed the Declaration of Independence. But then he was a leading figure in Philadelphia and uh, was elected to that Congress. Uh, That was the only time he uh, held any political office. But as I say, uh, as a signer, uh, he was one of the one of the 56 patriots who had signed. Uh, the Declaration of Independence, and was part of that group of of, of famed Americans. As time went on, came a doctor to many of those uh, people who st- the, the ones who stayed in Philadelphia, and was influential enough as a signer that uh, even after the war, long after the war, he could just wander in and out of of uh, what we now call. Uh, Independence Hall, Constitution Hall, uh, where the State Assembly met, where the Continental Congresses met, and he could just wander in and out and collar, uh, you know, buttonhole some of these uh, legislators and lobby for his favorite causes. Uh, he was uh, the first person to lobby against tobacco use, uh, called for temperance and the use of, of alcohol. He... Um, Helped found two great uh, Pennsylvania colleges, Dickinson College, and what was then Franklin College. Now it's now called Franklin and Marshall College. Uh, but they are two of America's leading uh, uh, institutions. He also, and this, um, most Americans, few. I don't think many Americans know this at all. He was the father of American veterinary medicine. Uh, when he he spent a, uh, a few months in Paris after he finished his medical studies, and Paris was the site of the first uh, veterinary hospital uh, in uh, in the world, or certainly in the Western world, as far as I know. Uh, and he uh, he found that French farmers, as a result of, of veterinary medicine, were making much greater profits. Than farmers in countries without veterinary medicine. So he came back and tried to start a veterinary uh, school in Philadelphia, the universe used. Fifty years later, they finally founded the first school of veterinary medicine in America. And of course, uh, farmers and just ordinary pet owners have benefited from this uh, ever since. But he was the father of American veterinary medicine in America.
3: Do you want to explain about capital punishment back in the the 18th century?
4: It it was up to individual judges and sheriffs and and law enforcement people. And uh, they were were pretty – people who went into that business were pretty sadistic people. Uh, Often uh, a teenager would be hung uh, for uh, stealing food, There there was no rhyme or reason to uh, the use of capital punishment. It depended on the anger of the community and of the arresting uh, officers. Uh, By ending capital punishment for non-capital crimes, uh, Benjamin Rush began to uh, force the legislatures, at least the Pennsylvania legislature and others then followed suit, Forced the Pennsylvania legislature to develop a a code of laws uh, with uh, a ranges of punishment attached to each law that that fit the crime uh, rather than fitting the the, the whim of arresting uh, officers or judges
3: and okay so at at the end of the revolutionary war. 1780s. Where does his career take him?
4: Well, his career took him uh, into general med- medical practice, which at the time was in its infancy. Uh, people don't realize how uh, recent medical developments are. Uh, at the time of the Revolutionary War and in fir- really until after the Civil War, uh, medicine was terribly, terribly primitive. They At the time of Rush, they hadn't even invented the needle that we now use. It's called a hollow-point needle uh, for ordinary injections. The only way to uh, put anything in the body was uh, to cut the body open with a knife, a lancet, they called it, the surgical knife. Uh, they had no medicines. The medicines were uh, basically whiskey. Uh, they had these patent medicines, uh, 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 sellers traveling all around the country calling themselves doctors but they weren't doctors. They just called themselves that. They sold patent medicines, which were basically flavored syrups uh, loaded with white lightning or whiskey. Uh, and, of course, people who used it got so drunk they f- it killed the pain, uh, but it didn't kill the disease, of course. Uh, the only standard treatment that uh, actual doctors with MDs used was bleeding, bleeding and purging. Uh, an age-old technique that went back to ancient Greece. uh, The theory was that uh, diseases got into the body through the air, breathing them in and uh, infecting uh, the fluids in your body. Well, uh, therefore, to get rid of the disease, they felt they had to get rid of those, empty the body of those fluids. So they gave them uh, emetics, which were very, very strong laxatives to... Clean out the entire gut, uh, and uh, they they bled the patients. They cut cut into the vein of the arm with a lancet, a knife, and allowed the patient to bleed about ten ounces of, of blood. Not enough to send the patient into shock, but to uh, make him kind of woozy and uh, feel somewhat better, because he was on the on the verge. The patient was on the verge of fainting and therefore became much more insensitive, less aware of their pain. Of course, this did nothing. Uh, Those who got better would have gotten better anyway without the bleeding and purging, and those who died uh, died in spite of the bleeding and purging. They died of whatever disease they had.
3: Two questions. Why isn't Dr. Benjamin Rush... Better remembered today,
4: uh, primarily because we don't study much American history anymore. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, they, they they did a survey of of college college seniors, and asked uh, who was the commanding general at the Battle of Yorktown, and two thirds <laughs> of those people said General Grant. <laughs>
3: Uh, I'm sorry to laugh. (laughs) Yeah, and,
4: you know, if you don't know Yorktown, if you don't know General George Washington and Yorktown, you don't know American history. And Americans no longer study much American history. The school, public school curricula have been uh, watered down with uh, a mush they call social studies, which teaches nothing. Uh, And uh, absolutely... uh, ignore American history. Every American child should grow up studying American history in almost every grade of elementary and secondary school, and they don't.
3: We're getting sidetracked, but what started this, the, the, the lack of studying history? The... Uh,
4: I think simply, in many cases, the isolation of many, many Americans. farm country, uh, and this is a huge, huge nation. Uh, small nations like uh, the ones in Western Europe, of course, they all uh, stu- study the history of their countries. Uh, this country, uh, you know, you get out to the plain states and the Rocky Mountain states, they've got other things on their minds. Uh, they're not as, as interested in, in what's going on in Washington, what went on uh, 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Only a handful of states compared to today, uh, fewer than half the states were involved in the Revolutionary War, so there's, and, and there were only 13 of today's states involved in the Revolutionary War. So historically, most of the people of this nation had nothing to do with, with American history.
3: But I don't know. I think if you took New York, I would bet New York would lag behind a good part of the country, even though it was one one of the 13 original colonies. Yeah, I think
4: you're right. And uh, the reason for that is that, generally speaking, across the country, uh, we tend to – the American people tend to put education and health last on their list of priorities in terms of government spending. Uh, uh, Traditionally, military has always been number one. Uh, agriculture has been very high on the list for, for, for obvious reasons. Mo- most of the nation uh, was farm country for, for almost two centuries. Uh, education has never been high among our priorities, neither, and, and nor has healthcare, and we're still battling that. Uh, the the educa- public education budgets just seem to go down, down, down. It's only recently that teachers in a number of states have uh, risen up and said, we need enough money to eat, <laughs> and uh, we also need some money to teach. Uh, but uh, you have states like uh, Kansas and who keep cutting the budget, and they don't care about educating their children.
3: Final question. Why does Dr. Benjamin Rush deserve to be remembered?
4: Uh, he was the father, the founding father, of uh, our social structure, he founded almost every social movement that we've ever had in American history, uh, with, uh, so starting with women's rights, uh, education, pu- universal public education of all children, free public school education, uh, uh, treatment of wounded soldiers on and off the battlefield, uh, treatment of the mentally ill as uh, patients uh, rather than uh, prisoners and uh, her- heretics. Uh, he was the father of uh, ethical codes for physicians uh, the, and the, the, really the father of medical school education in America. He insisted on longer, more years of medical education and better medical school education. Everything, every element of progress that we have, of social progress in this country today can be traced back to Dr. Benjamin Rush. Remember the other signers of the Declaration of Independence, most of them were extremely, the the wealthiest uh, men in this country. First of all, they were all men. Secondly, they were among the wealthiest in this country Uh, uh, half or more of them slave owners. So they were not interested in social progress. They were interested in freeing this country uh, from British rule so that they didn't have to pay taxes to to support the king. That was their only interest after independence and even after the signing of the Constitution. Women had no rights. Uh, Slavery continued. Uh, Children, of course, had no rights, certainly no rights to education. No social progress was made until uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush uh, set up programs that eventually led to the social progress we have today.
3: Okay, the name of the book, Dr. Benjamin Rush, the founding father who healed a wounded nation. The author, Har- Harlow
2: Giles Unger, thank you for bringing history to life.
4: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's always an honor to be on your show.
2: with me right now, I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888 943 2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com/Fmelia. Once again, call 888 943 2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement.
1: Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank and MLS number 403503. Father Paul Bolecki, Capuchin friar and medical doctor, established a missionary hospital in Lebanon to provide medical care to Christian refugees. He also helps relocate them to safer areas. Connors and Sullivan, attorneys at law, is hosting a special fundraiser to help Father Paul and his team purchase supplies, treat their patients, and help them find safe havens. Basically, Father Paul is the last resort for these faithful Christians in the Middle East who've been forgotten by most of the world. Join us on Thursday, November 15th at the Bay Ridge Manor. At 476 76th Street in Brooklyn. Meet Father Paul, who'll tell you what's really happening to Christians in the Middle East. Call Monica at 718 238 6500 to reserve your place at this important fundraising event, as all of the proceeds will support Father Paul's compassionate mission. 718 238 6500. Again, that's 718 238 6500.
0: Welcome
3: to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. On November 12th, 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street, Civil War Roundtable of New York is going to be meeting, and our guest speaker is Peter Carmichael and his... topic is about the common soldier during the civil war and you have a a book about that don't you peter
5: i i do my book is published uh it's going to be published by the university of north carolina press and it will be released on november 19th of course that's gettysburg address day and uh although you can pre-order it uh, by Amazon right now, if one would like to do so.
3: Obviously, we know what the book is about, but what specifically? What what is the point you're trying to get across to the reader, and, and what do you want them to learn? Uh,
5: you're correct. There have been many books on the common soldier by a very good historians, such as James McPherson. I felt like a book was needed that would tell the totality of the soldier experience. What we have had from McPherson and others is a, a view of the intellectual world of these men. I felt like that, that didn't tell the entire story, that we didn't get a sense of how these men lived out their daily lives. And so what I've done is I've taken case st- uh, st- studies, um, like mini-biographies, that take these men through the course of the war, and we see how their attitudes about the war and how their actions are often in tension with one another. But more importantly, they change over time. And so the approach that I have taken is a strikingly different one than I think other historians have done. And yet I have certainly built upon the fine work of Dr. McPherson,
3: Joe Glattar, and many others. Who was the common soldier? Let's start with the Union. Who was the the common union soldier?
5: So I I, I think that's a great question because the point of my book is that in a sense there really is no common soldier. And it's the search for the common soldier which has led us— to stereotype these men in ways that uh, they look one-dimensional. And so we want to say, all right, the common soldier is between the ages of 19 to 23. He's from a rural background. He was single. He typically enlisted in the early part of the war, and he was often full of idealism. Certainly all those things ring true, but in so doing, we have, again, um, it's almost like, like I said, almost like a caricature. And so what I would suggest is rather than looking for the common soldier, well, what we should aim toward is understanding how these men could be many different things at very different times of the war. They could be brave in one moment, cowardly in the next. They could have a strong sense of duty, but then in another instance, they would rework that sense of duty. And so, what this book tries to to convey to people is that let's not look for that representative figure because you won't find them. Instead, try to figure out the many masks that soldiers wore on both sides.
3: In in your studies, what percentage of, let's say, the Union Army were volunteers and, and how many were conscripted? And was there a major difference between them?
5: Yeah. So, again, I think it's, it's an important question because the vast majority of soldiers on both sides were volunteers. Now, again, that question becomes a little tricky, especially on the Union side, because by eighteen summer of 1862, you start to have the beginning of the draft. And the draft was used to entice people to actually enlist. So. The, our sense of the draft today is, of course, a man gets his or a woman gets his or her number called and pulled into military service. Uh, that certainly did happen during the Civil War, but the draft was really intended to be an inducement. Now, your second part of your question is, again, reveals, a, I think, a significant difference in Union armies after 1863. When men are coming into the ranks, often the inducement is It's monetary. Uh, These men got a substantial bounty, financial bounty, to join, to enlist. Uh, These men clearly were not filled with the kind of idealism that uh, motivated men early in the war. Uh, There's no question about that. But I think what we again need to find and what's important about Civil War soldiers in general
2: is that they weren't
5: ideologues, uh, even though they had firm convictions about what this war was about and even though they believed that the sacrifice of blood was a sacred one. But nonetheless, they were from time to time willing to rework basic assumptions about the war. So, to answer your question, those men who came in 1864, there was a very different understanding of what courage was, even by those veterans who enlisted in 1861. And that different understanding of courage was a recognition that a man could only take so much before his body and his mind would give out. In 1861, there was an idea that a man should be able to endure combat without flinching. But, of course, they came to see that that simply was not possible. So once again, I just want to stress and emphasize that what this book does through individual case studies, it shows how these men were constantly changing. Soldiering was the act of becoming. It never was one faint. And, uh, and again, I think that that is uh, the great contribution of uh, of the, boat, the war for the common soldier.
3: Well, let me ask you this. What was the life of, of the common soldier like, let's say, in, in the first two years of the war and, and the last two years? Like, how many days of combat would the common soldier say, let's say, if he was in the Army of the Potomac?
5: Right. So the main uh, Union Army that fought in Virginia or the Eastern Theater, how many days a soldier uh, saw I would say certainly, certainly less than 15, you know, during the year without a doubt. I mean, that is, I think, again, some people lose sight of that is that for most of these men, the war experience is not on the battlefield. The war experience is in camp, the war experience is in, in marching as well. You know, that was the essence of being
3: a, a soldier. Uh, and so what was
5: the other part of your question? About well,
3: the later the part of the war, let's say when we get into Petersburg and— beyond. Yeah. So yes, so if you're thinking again just of Virginia,
5: the nature of the war changed profoundly beginning in May of 1864 when Ulysses S Grant and George Gordon Meade lead the Army of the Potomac into the heart of Virginia. It's called the Overland Campaign and from the beginning of May all the way all the way to really the middle of June there is constant uninterrupted operations. That's very unique, not just in the war in Virginia, but in the Civil War uh, as a whole. And that kind of fighting, the physical and mental duress, is something that these soldiers could have never imagined. and something they weren't prepared for. And again, what I found time and time again, even at the later stages of the war, such as 1864, the officers in particular, but even enlisted men, they had no sense of mental trauma. They had no sense of how the physical demands of campaigning, how that that would grind a man down. And so you see by the end of the overland campaign, an army of the Potomac that had been spent. uh, Of course, they had lost tremendously in terms of manpower. But also, it was on the verge. He almost deserted. He stayed with the army. At the end of the campaign, he wrote his wife, and he said that he looked around him, and the survivors of his regiment were broken down. They were getting They had this sense of dread that was haunting them. It's right after the campaign. Then two weeks later, he got a new sack coat issued to him. He looked at his old sack coat, and he said that it was an item of clothing that he treasured more than anything in the world because it had the soil of all the battles where he had fought and the blood of his comrades. He said he wanted to keep that coat. He wanted to send it home. He wanted it to be a relic that he could look upon for the rest of his life. That right there captures the contradictions, the complexities of this one particular man, Charles Biddlecop, who was really no different than other men on both sides, who, in one moment, could embrace combat, who took great pride in it as an assertion of manliness, assertion of pride, and then another moment, feel this great disgust for the human slaughter that they had witnessed and that they had contributed to.
3: On our conversation, we focus more on the Union side. What about the Confederate side?
5: Well, I think that on the Confederate side, one of the things that we have emphasized too much is we have emphasized the idea of Confederate nationalism as a motivating force for Southern soldiers. How can one explain why so many Confederates endured so much all the way to the bitter end? And that, of course, is an indisputable fact. Armies. Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's Army of Virginia, the Army of Tennessee and Georgia. The rank and file of both of those armies certainly had men who had strong political commitments to the cause of Southern nationhood. But what we have overlooked time and time again is that we have overlooked that there weren't many options for these men, these Confederate soldiers. There are not many political choices for them. So if you have great dissatisfaction with the war, If you have real grievances with the Confederate Army, if you're a non-slaveholder and you believe that this conflict is for the rich and the mighty, what can you possibly do? Because if you desert, the risks that one runs are so great, and if you were to succeed and actually get home, you couldn't just simply sit on the veranda and wait for the war to end. You'd have to hide out like an outlaw. And so what we have I think overstated with Confederate soldiers in particular is the role of ideology, the role of motivation. It gives these men great power over their circumstances and their environment when in fact, when in fact, they didn't have that and their letters attest to that. One of the most powerful collections I encountered was from a Confederate soldier who was illiterate. He dictated his letters to a comrade They are incredibly powerful because the man himself who wrote them down, he was barely literate. And what you have, this soldier's name is John Futch, F-U-T-C-H. John Futch was in the third North Carolina. John Futch, right here where I'm calling you from, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, a mile from my house. John Futch and his brother Charlie, on the night of July the 2nd, engaging the Union Army, his brother was killed mortally wounded, died in John Futch's arms. John Futch then dictated a series of letters back in Virginia, obviously after the battle. Those letters speak to his great political grievances against the war, but they're not expressed in high politics. They're expressed as a man who thought war was inhumane, a man who has lost his brother and is grieving for him, and a man who feared for the safety of his home and his family. And he, with ten other men, struck back, and in early August of 1863, they deserted and headed back to North Carolina, rejecting the war, rejecting the Confederacy. But they did not use the language of nationalism. It was so far removed from their daily lives. But at the same time, their decision to desert was unmistakably political and unmistakably radical. What happened to them? So? They left their camp, which was near Montpelier, Virginia, James Madison's home. They got just below the James River, south of Charlottesville, after about three days of, of course, traveling just at night. When they got to the James River, they started to cross. They were intercepted by a Confederate patrol. A firefight erupted. The officer of the arresting party was shot, killed by Futch and his comrades. Futch and his comrades gave up, surrendered, sent to Richmond tried for desertion and of course for killing an officer convicted sentenced execution before a firing squad put back on the trains taken to montpelier their entire division a division that saw the most sustained fighting at gettysburg at culps hill the survivors of that were then lined up in a hollow square ten stakes and what was the largest max execution in these armies The largest. The news reporter who saw Futch and his comrades tied to stakes and blindfolded said that a few of the men were crying out for their mothers, pleading for forgiveness. Each one of those soldiers, including Futch, faced a firing squad of ten soldiers. When the order was given, a massive volley was unleashed. When the smoke cleared, two of those men, two of the convicted, were still living. Reserve squads rushed up, shot them, killed them, And then Johnson's division, these men, again, the survivors of Gettysburg, were forced to march by the corpses of their comrades at slow time to impress upon them the crime of desertion. And in fact, did this death ritual work? It did not, because desertion in Fletcher's unit, the 3rd North Carolina, continued well into the late fall and early winter eighteen sixty three, eighteen sixty four. 1863, 1864. It's a powerful story, John Futch. It's a story that reminded me that these men, again on both sides, the bonds of comradeship were so strong that John Futch felt comfortable enough to express his deepest emotions to a comrade who wrote them down. To admit that he was in absolute agony and to quote one of his letters, he wrote, I am almost going half crazy. I've read a lot of civil war letters in my career. I've never seen a an mission anything like that before. And so when we think about civil war soldiers on both sides, we often think that they were so embattled by war that they turned inward, walled themselves off, not just from their loved ones back on the home front, but from their comrades. I found time and time again union and confederate soldiers emotionally open acknowledging the fears that they felt on the battlefield acknowledging the horrors that they were trying to come to terms with and with their loved ones with their wives and with their children they were extremely expressive about the love they felt for them the longing to want to be home that really does go against the grain of what we have i think heard about Civil War soldiers until my book, because we have been so focused on ideology, we have been so focused on motivation that we have
3: lost the lived experience of these men, which I, of course, have tried to recover. Those who survived the war, what was their lives like after the war? I, I wish I had done a chapter that that, that, that tackled that issue, and I will, I'll, I will tell you because
5: I have certainly thought about that. Brian Jordan who has uh, written a fantastic book. It's called Marching Home. He's at uh, Sam Houston State, Brian Jordan. If you're interested in that transition, he is certainly uh, the person uh, whose scholarship is very good uh, on that front. I think that I'll, I'll, I do have a chapter at the very end about Appomattox and the armies demobilizing and going home. I'll start with the Confederates. As you can imagine, the sense of shame and humiliation of defeat was great, but also the feeling uh, I should say, the joy of surviving. It was so powerful and so overwhelming. So these men were Confederate soldiers. These were certainly conflicted because there were plenty who wanted to continue the fight, but the vast majority knew that the game was up. And upon returning to their homes, there was um, a sense of being lost, their minds almost in disarray. There was a a, a Virginia soldier, John Hampton Chamberlain, when he returned to his family's home, he said that he woke up day after day in the months that followed Appomattox, and he said it was as if he was living in a dream. He could not make sense of that moment because the past weighed so heavily upon him. And he started immediately to imagine redemption, redemption meaning that there would come a time in which somehow, some way, that the ghost of the Confederate past that they would inspire a new Southern generation to reassert itself politically and militarily. Now, that's an absolute hallucination on John Hampton Chamberlain's part, but you get a sense of the depth of loss and destruction that Confederates felt. And for some, maybe even the fear that, why did God abandon us and allow the Union armies to be victorious? And grappling with that issue, and to varying degrees, I think, did cause a, a, not necessarily a crisis of faith, because they still kept believing in God, but a recognition that God is a power that's that's mystified, that's, that's beyond our reach. On the Union side, as you can imagine, these northern soldiers felt immense pride in doing their part in saving the Union and destroying slavery. Hand in hand. Carrie Janey's book makes that absolutely clear. Your They want to read a really good book on the memory of the Civil War. Carrie Janey, J-A-N-N-E-Y. That's where you need to go. What I did in my book is I followed the Union soldiers through Virginia, including Sherman's men, and I focused on their visit to the battlefields around Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania, Wilderness, Chancellorsville. It's fascinating. They turn into relic hunters. They want visible proof of the hell that they had endured. And, of course, find it right there, right? You are looking at a battlefield that is utterly scarred. Trees, limbs, fence posts, wherever you look. And they're taking that stuff. But here's the other thing they're deeply, deeply concerned about. The poor treatment of they're dead. They saw these shallow graves. They saw skulls laying about. They were horrified. They were angered, and many men broke ranks and took their time to give comrades a decent burial. Before, of course, they all regrouped as an army and made their way to Washington, D.C. for the Grand Review. But what I can't stress enough is that in that visit to the battlefields, when they became in essence tourists, right, they they didn't become romantic about the war. They were clearly haunted by it and haunted by the violence, but make no mistake about it, there was no question in their minds that the right side had won and that their blood sacrifice, that it was for a noble and decent cause, the cause of union, which was inseparable from the cause of emancipation
3: very good the war for the common soldier how men thought fought and survived in civil war armies the author peter carmichael thank you for being on connor's corner i really enjoyed it thank you for having me i appreciate it how
5: can i protect my family if something happens to me
3: what if i need to go to a nursing home what
4: will happen to our savings our home what's the best way to give my home to my kids who will help
1: us take care of grandpa Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
3: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Now, if any of you are interested in seeing Peter Carmichael in person, he's going to be at the 3 West Club on November 12th, 3 West 51st Street. Now, the Civil War Roundtable, you get a three-course meal, and you get to speak to the guest speakers for almost any amount of time because usually they're staying in the the exact same room in the hotel, staying in a room in the same place they're there, you can ask them questions. Again, you know, like I, I love the New York Historical Society whatever. You go there, you have a very nice presentation. You're in a big auditorium. The guests leave. You have, in many cases, no real opportunity to speak to them. At the Civil War Roundtable, you can hang around. You can talk to the guest speakers. So if you want to come, though, we need to know, we need to put in reservations. You have to call at 718 341 98 718-341-9811. The cost for non members is sixty dollars, but again you receive a three course meal and a real opportunity to meet with some of the greatest civil war historians of our time. And by the way, in December we're gonna have Bud Robertson back and I think anybody who's heard Bud Robertson speaks will will agree that he's one of the greatest Civil War historian speakers, you know, that that we have today. 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street, Monday, November 12th. And remember the Monday because we've been changing our schedule because of different conflicts with holidays, religious observances, and so forth. So, 3 West 51st Street on no- November 12th. Again, if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, you can give one of our offices a call. All f- phone calls go through our main number in Brooklyn at 718. 718- now, the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. So if you want to accomplish that for your family, it's not always as easy as it sounds, but if you want to accomplish those goals for your family, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. There's no one right answer for everybody, but there is a wrong answer, and that's to do nothing. Because a lot of people come in and they say, well, I don't know what to do, so they do nothing. That's not the right way. If nothing else, start with the will. If you have family members you can trust, think about a power of attorney. But get started. Do something. The only... Big mistake you can make. The biggest mistake you can make in estate planning is to do nothing at all. So, okay, thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We'll be back here next week at the same time and place.
1: We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. We are gathered here here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. the preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law PLLC.